My name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. In competitive circles, winning is sometimes seen as the only measure for success, while others say that consistency at a high level is really what ought to count. To be honest, for this particular interview it doesn't really matter one way or the other, because with me today is a course match angler that's headed up the field on both counts. None other, in fact, than world and European title holder, as well as long-time England team member Ian Heaps, at his Holgan Farm-based School of Angling and Fishery in Pembrokeshire, South West Wales. The obvious first question, and one you've probably been asked many times over the years, has to be, what does it actually feel like to be Crown Course Angling Champion of the World? Well, it's unbelievable. It was in a great big auditorium in Poland, and I was sat there in one of the rows, all dressed up with the England uniform on, the England team sat in a row. When a little girl, like a brownie-type girl, with the bear in the Union Jack, came and escorted me from that row onto the front stage, where I had to climb this plinth, and they presented me. First of all, they gave me a bunch of carnations, <laughs> and a great big... Uh, pot trophy, like a hand-painted Ming vase-type trophy, uh, which obviously I still have, and they gave me that, and that was the proudest moment ever, to stand there, right, in front of all these thousands of fishermen, representing your sport, and to top it all, of course, they play the national anthem, and I'm not a very effeminate sort of person, but I couldn't stop the tears rolling down my cheeks as I stood there, bunch of carnations, trophy under my arm, thousands of flashlights going off from thousands of cameras and while they played the Queen. Do you know, I'll tell you what it made me realise. When I was a kid and used to go to the pictures, we used to finish the pictures before the film had finished so we could be first in the queue at the chippy and then back home. And we never ever waited for the anthem. I don't do that anymore. I always wait till the anthem's finished before I leave anywhere. You also took the European Championship in Portugal back in 1985 and was an England team regular from 1975 to 1988. I suppose with all of that still to come when he was Crown World Champion, you presumably hadn't by that stage got used to being in the limelight. I was winning matches since the age of 18. I was winning open matches since the age of 18. Uh, I was already what people would term a household name on the River Trent. In fact, the Saturday Burton Joyce opens, the organiser then called the Meeksy's Benevolent Matches. So, yeah, I'd been winning a lot of matches. I won the uh, Groves of Whitnall on the canal, and I won, yeah, I won matches all over. And it was because of these successes that I actually got selected for the England team in the first when we were chatting last evening about your England call-up, you mentioned fishing one particular match when somebody stopped a car in the road just behind you and slammed the door very loudly, which is never a good thing when you're fishing, then started heading over in your direction. I was, yeah, I was fishing a, a, an open match on the Welland, and um, there was only bream on, in certain pegs, and I was in a, an area that was void of bream, but I was catching roach, and good quality roach on the castle, catching them quite steady. And I fancied my chances, when all of a sudden, <laughs> some idiot slammed a car door behind me. Uh, because the road runs right along the back of you on the Welland, 
And when I looked, it was Stan Smith. It wasn't an idiot at all. It was Stan Smith, the manager of the England team. I'd never ever spoke to the man before, but he, he came up to me, he said, Ian Heath. I says, yes, Stan Smith. And he says, that's right. He said, uh, the World Championships, for the first time, are behind the Iron Curtain in Poland. How would you like the opportunity of representing England? Well, I'll just knocked Courtway. In fact, my fishy just went to pop the rest of that match. My head was in other places, and uh, when I got home and told my father, who was my mentor, he was a chap who started me at an early, early age, uh, it was a, a teetotal house, really, but the champagne flowed that night just because I'd been selected. Uh, I don't like a football team where there's, I don't know, 30 other squad. There was five fishing and one reserve on the England team, so to be one of six was the highest accolade one could achieve. What was the criteria for selecting the team back then, and how has that changed through to more recent times? It varies. I mean, there's a selection committee now that picks, hand-picked people. At one time, when there only used to be one national championships, unlike today where there's divisions, but the five top teams in the national, the best performer of those teams used to formulate the England team. That's how it used to be. When I, the year I got picked, I actually won my section, Stockport, I was fishing for Stockport, it was on the Warwickshire Haven, and Stockport won the uh, championships that year. I won my section uh, on the slider. It just so happened that this sort of fishing suited the venue in Poland, which was a deep canal, about 40 foot deep, about 30 metres wide. So that result, undoubtedly, fortified the place for me in the England team. So in answer to the point I made during my introduction, what in your opinion is the better yardstick for judging match angling ability? Is it occasional wins or consistency? Every time consistency, yeah. Yeah, consistency. Being a man hard to beat, right, off the next peg, is the mark of a good match angler. They don't always win because the look of the draw in our sport plays such a big part. But at the end of a year, the top anglers always show enough results to mark their quality. Now you mentioned earlier how your father was your mentor. What I'd like to do now is take you back to the very beginning of your career. How and why did he decide on angling as opposed to any one of a number of other hobbies which as a young man you might have followed? Well, my dad was a, a, a sort of country chap, if you like. And it wasn't just fishing. I mean, for me, you were allowed to collect birds' eggs in those days. But we used to do it very carefully. We'd take one egg and we had to wait for those four or five in the net. He took one. I had a, a big collection of birds. I knew where every bird laid its eggs. I knew, I used to know the songs of all the birds, the habitat they liked, where they would build a nest. I spent hours. Even butterflies, I even collected butterflies, anything to do with wildlife, that was me. You'd more likely find me outside in the woods somewhere, or on the bank of a canal or a pond, than you would play football, say, for example. Even though I enjoyed football, but uh, I was an outside person. And that was all sort of fueled by my father's en enthusiasm. Also in the garden, you know, he used to grow tomatoes and croissants. I mean, here at Holger Farm now, I'm quite proud of all the planting we've done round all the lakes. And that, once again, is a throwback 
of how I was brought up. Something else you also mentioned last evening was that many of your earlier formative days were spent on a series of lodges very close to where I live at Heapy in Lancashire. Yeah, in Chorley, Heapsies Reservoirs. Nothing, nothing to do with me, it's just one of those things that happens to be called Heapsies, but uh, it was one of the one of the only deep places, there was that rugged lake perhaps, where I could go and master practice fishing the sliding float. And I actually designed with my father the loaded slider. At one time the only slider that was available was the Billy Lane slider. And I couldn't get on with that because it used to shoot up the line, sometimes past the knot. And I'd been, been given all the credit for the loaded slider, but really it was once again it was my father. He said, what we need to do is build weight in the base of the float. So in casting, the float is the boss, not the bulk shot. If the bulk shot was the boss, the bulk shot would go and the float would be left, shooting up the line. So by adding a certain percentage of lead to the base of the float, it stopped all that problem. It made the loaded slider so easy to use. And um, I say it was perfected on Epi's Reservoirs at Chorley and Rigid Lake. And it was that float, perhaps why we're sat here now, because becoming a good angler on the slider, that's what won me my section on the Warwickshire Haven, that's what helped me to be get selected for the England team, and the rest is history. So what made you choose course match angling as opposed to, say, pleasure fishing or specimen hunting? Have you always had this competitive streak? I've always had a competitive streak, but... Uh, my father was the chairman of Romley Anglers, which was strictly an adult club. They didn't have a junior section. But because I was getting sort of 12, 13 years of age, it got voted through with my father's push that they accepted. I was the first junior member. And it wasn't long before I was actually winning senior matches. And we used to go to the Trent and I would be in the first four every time. Then started to win quite a few. And my father said, I said, I'd be about 17 at the time. And he said, uh, I think it's time that you moved on onto the open circuit. Because you used to have to attend club meetings to get your name on the list where they would fill two coaches for a trip to the Trent. And because the same little group of people, which I was a member of, were winning all the time, they were now struggling to fill one coach. So with my father's advice, I sort of backed off the club matches. And at 18, went on the open circuit. And the first match I fished was a match at Newark Dyke. And uh, I beat one of my idols, Benny Ashurst, into second place. I weighed in 13 pounds, 15 ounces, 12 drams. And just 7 ounces more than Benny. And I was sort of cock up. But that was the start of my string of open wins on the Trent and other venues. I was now well and truly into match fishing big time. So you get into match angling at an early age and progress quite quickly through to the very top. But when you set out on that journey, you're no nearer to a world title than presumably thousands of other match anglers either at that time or even today. Talk us through that early learning process. Well, first of all, I think to be a successful angler stroke match angler, then you've got to have a particular sort of brain, one that's akin with wildlife. So already having that because of the way I was brought up, 
I did go and watch one match once, and it was a match on the River Trent. Not long before, I beat Benny Ashurst on that first open match I ever fished. And this was a match where there was 12 guys from the North West versus 12 Nottingham chaps. They called it the match of the reels because all the Nottingham men had centre pin reels and all the North West lads had Mitchell's thick spool reels. It was alternate angle and I went down and I watched. And Benny Ashes, you know, was so neat. He looked slow actually, but he wasn't because everything was so deliberate. And every time his float ran through that swim, down it would go and it'd be into a fish. He seemed to bring it in, in slow motion. But nevertheless, it was a fish, followed by another one, the next cast. Brilliant to watch. And the way they used to fish was a little tiny shot spread evenly down the line. They used to call it shirt button, shotting button, with tiny shot, like tens and eights strung down the line. And... It wasn't really the match of the reels at all, it was the match of the baits, because all the Manchester lads were using caster, and all the Nottingham lads were using maggot. And the one from Nottingham that impressed me most was, I can't think of his name now, but nevertheless this guy, right, he fished with a, an Avon-type float. Albert Badder was his name, and he fished with an Avon-type float. He fished a little bit further out than anybody else with his centre pin, and his shotty pattern was so simple, he had a drilled bullet about three and a half foot from his hook in eight foot of water. And he had about a number six halfway between that and his hook. And he fished maggot. And every time he cast it out, he would get a ball of ground bait, only a small ball of ground bait. And this ball of ground bait would go in in exactly the same spot. And while he was doing that, his float would be under because he was overshotted. And then he would lift the float back up and the reel would start to turn round then his centre pin reel. And it would always travel a metre and down it would go. And he'd have a fish every cast. But the Manchester lads were catching quality roach on the caster. On the maggot, Albert Badder, although he must have caught more fish than any of the others put together. Not put together, but any of the others. He was catching good gin, small roach, small dates, a net roach, you know, a big... He had a mixed catch but I was very impressed and on the way home from that match I could see what he was doing holding on to that bulk shot and I thought if you could combine the Manchester method with the Nottingham method you would come up with the ultimate shotty pattern and that's what I did I created a bulk by putting four number eights together and below that, three number eights, and two number eights, and one number eight, and a number ten, and then the hook. Above that bulk, that four number eights, we'll go three, two, one, 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 single ones right up to the float. Like a leaded line, like a tapered line. And that's the shotty pattern that I used when I beat Benny into second place, and what I used for the rest of my life on moving waters. Explain to us then what made that particular shotting pattern work better than what had gone before. Well, what it's about is, if you look at a cross-section of a river, let's say six, eight foot deep, then you'll find that there are three different speeds. The surface is the fastest, the bottom is the slowest because of the frictional drag on stones or rocks or even gravel, so that slows it down. If you used to let your float go down 
at what appeared to be the true pace of speed of the river, then you'd be presenting the bait unnaturally too quickly on the bed. So that's why we use a float called a stick float that's fastened top and bottom so you can hold it back because the line is connected to the top of the float. You can hold it back and slow it down, try and copy it. Well, that shotty pattern, not only does it cast out nice, but it also gives you the weight downstairs that you can actually hold that float back and copy the true speed which is needed to catch fish. What other sources of good information were available at that time? Fishing matches is the best source of information. Because anybody who won a match, if you, st if you spoke to him afterwards, he would be so full of it after just winning the match. You could ask him anything and he'll tell you the whole... And they don't tell lies, most of them. They, you know, they're proud of what they've done and... How much did you feed? Typical question. Lots or little, little and often, or a big dollop every now and again. All them sort of things. What line do you use? What size up do you use? Yeah, to scale down to a this or a that. Found a hell of a difference between fishing a 20s and a 16s. Get little bitty bites on the 60s, sooner put a 20 on the float buried. They were more confident, and th things like that. Always good to ask the winner how he's caught fish. And, and match fishermen have brilliant memories. Even now I can turn the clock back. All them dozens of years ago. In fact, I probably know every peg on the River Trent, both banks, from Nottingham down to the tidal water because I fished it every Saturday, every Sunday, all my life, until I moved here. Who were those consistent winners that you could tap into for information back then? Like I said, the Ashes, right, were very, very good, very, very difficult to beat, both Benny and Kevin. I mean, Kevin, like me, was fortunate to have a father like Benny, like I had Jim. <laughs> and then there were some good Nottingham anglers. The Nottingham anglers were slow to cotton on to the caster. They pinned their faith in the maggot. And without doubt the caster did catch better quality fish. And then you got people like the Toolsons and Pete Warren. Pete Warren became very hard to beat because he dedicated himself into fishing off the end of his rod with casters. And uh, used to do very, very well. When you're progressing through the ranks, and I suppose even when you've made the big time too, there must still be low points as well as highs. Then you don't remember them. You just carry on regardless. <laughs> Am I right in thinking then that when you finally get into the upper circles fishing against the other big names, greater pressure and harder work in terms of preparation come with that as part of the package? Not really, because there was an awful lot of preparation went into every match, and it was only the same preparation went into the matches afterwards. So it's the same level of commitment throughout? Of course. Yeah, I mean, I would not buy casters. Well, I used to buy a gallon of maggots every Monday with a view to putting them in nice damp sawdust to run my casters off for the next weekend because I wouldn't rely on shop-bought casters. It was things like that. I wanted perfection. If your bait's top quality, there's nothing else you can blame on your own fishing on the day. But by having top quality bait, that boosts your confidence. And confidence plays a big part in being successful. Equally important, I suspect, is the ability to accurately read a swim. 
particularly at a new venue, to give that bait and the range of tactics you have at your disposal the best opportunity to maximise a result. What then are you looking for in terms of reading the water and understanding what might be in front of you? Well, it depends on the time of the year, it depends on the state of the river. Obviously it's a different aspect if it's in winter and it's in flood, you might be carrying two foot of dirty water. The slackish water is in the margins. And I've won many, many matches with a method which they call strep pegging, with a stick float, holding it still in the margins, feeding the crease, the inside of the crease, where you get the slack water in the margins, and the fast, steamy water of the main current of a river in flood. You get what appears to like, look like a, a nylon line on the surface of the water, and that is the division between the slow water and the fast water. And by feeding the slow water and fishing on the edge of the fast water, where feeding fish are looking for bait coming down that flow, that is a technique that we use in the wintertime when the river's carrying a bit. You go in the summertime and the river's low and clear, then you've got no cover, you've got no colour. The water, when it's coloured, it gives you cover. On a low and clear river, then distance is the key because the fish will be afraid to come too close in such clear conditions. So then you talk about chucking a waggler and feeding with a catapult at distance. It's all those sort of things. Still waters. Wind direction plays an awful part. Fish tend to follow the wind like these cart waters of today. You know, looking for the best peg. Look for the bank where the wind's blowing and you won't go far wrong to start with. But Portal fishing has made fishing much more simpler. In the days when it was all waggler fishing, then you used to get currents, flows created by the wind, sometimes in the opposite direction to the wind. If the wind was slightly at your back, but let's say blowing from left to right, well on the bank where you were sat with the wind slightly at your back, that's the key, the water will be towing the opposite direction from right to left, but that water goes right around the lake, so on the other side where the wind's blowing in their faces, the tow is also going in that same direction. So to get that bait presented in a fashion that fish will accept, in other words, slow down if not still, then you have to fish with extra line on the bottom, little tiny shots on the bottom, to try and anchor that bait. Whereas today with a pole, by locking the pole in a certain position, you can hold the flood. So the, the pole has been a big leveller, really, in uh, helping people to achieve the best presentation. When you're fishing an open match as an individual, although conditions in the water itself will dictate much of what you do, you at least have the option to do what it is you want. As a member of a team, presumably that freedom is restricted. So in the case of, say, the Home Internationals, or some other prestigious big team event, are there any team plans or even team orders, and are these likely to change as the match starts to unfold? Well, yeah. If you're fishing for a team, then it's a completely different match. First job is with a team, you've got to catch, no matter what. Even if it means scratching for little fish. Can't afford a blank, because if you go for quality fish, then you're either going to win the match, or possibly win the match, or collapse totally. And in team fishing you can't afford to do that. So, yeah, there are certain plans laid down. 
a lot of teams say target weight is sort of six pound, catch three pound, and then go your own way. A lot do that to give the individual a chance of individual honours as well as doing it. Because there's been that many individual chances flaunted, lost, because they've stuck to team policy, scratching for little fish, and they know they could have been catching bream, for example, instead of roach. So different clubs have different sort of views on it, and they make the rules to the team accordingly. But if an agreed tactic clearly isn't working, who decides, or at what stage is the decision taken to switch to something else? And what might that be? Well, on team vision, once again, you've got to have the team in your mind first and frontmost. And then, once you start to realise that there's bigger fish there to be caught, there's nobody there to tell you. You've got to do it yourself. As an example, you might be catching, you might be catching roaches a couple of rod lengths out, and on the far bank you can see bream porpoising. Right, be a silly man to ignore those bream, wouldn't it? So, yeah, I mean, some of the top anglers who are members of team, they give them a carte blanche, do what you want, do what you see best. Some have got to fish to team policy. To one extent can look, both good and bad play its part. And have you any examples of where it's had an effect on your result? Oh yeah, I mean, look, the look of the draw is most important in match fishing. You can't win from a bad peg. You can score high in your section from a bad peg. And I've seen times when the saying goes, I made a bad peg into a winner. That's just a little bit of a, bit of a laugh, really. To win, it's got to be a good peg. But what he meant, he's done it dead right. Good luck and bad luck. Well, I'm a great believer you make your own. Both good and bad. Does a point come where to get on, or even to stay on a particular rung of the ladder as you progress upwards, you either consciously have to step up a gear, or decide perhaps to leave match fishing alone? No, not like that at all. You just carry on regardless. I mean, the thing that got you up the ladder is the way you fish, so just carry on. There is no, there's no second gear or third gear, no booster gear to go into, because you're doing your best you can, and you just carry on in the same vein. And in terms of that commitment... Do sacrifices then have to be made in other areas of your life to be the best you can possibly be? Totally. That's why the divorce rate is so high. <laughs> in anglers. This total commitment is required to be successful on the match fishing scene. How hard do you think it might be for anyone else wanting to follow in your footsteps to get onto those final rungs of a ladder today with so many man-made match waters? Commercial waters. Yeah, as opposed to fishing natural rivers and long-established canals. And there are people who fish just one venue and they keep fishing that venue and they find the best methods for different parts of the year, different times of the year, and they become very, very hard to beat these individuals. Whereas in my day, we fished a multitude of different venues, from bloodworm fishing on the canal to stick float fishing on the Trent, slider fishing in, on deep venues, and you had to be versatile in all the different disciplines. And even in my day, as a member of the England team, there was only probably 20 people maximum, if that, that I could name that would be versatile in all those different disciplines. 
We talked earlier about Stan Smith slamming his car door, then inviting you to fish for the team. That presumably was how the team selection was handled back then. To what extent have things changed since your time, or even during your time? Well, he just picked the team on merit, and it was the same, often the same team year after year after year with the odd new face that came along. Like I said, it was very difficult to find men who were as versatile as the ones he'd already got. So, there's a big match coming up. Let's say a world championship and you're in the team. Talk us through the pre-match preparation. It's obviously a, a venue that we've never fished before. So what we've got to do is get over there for a week and try different methods and find out what is going to be the method on the day. One of the ways that Stan Smith used to do it, he used to organise a three-hour match, which is the duration of a world championship. He used to organise a three-hour match between his squad members in the morning. And in the afternoon, after lunch, he'd, we'd move pegs and he'd place different angles against others, so he'd shuffle them around and have another three-hour match. And even though it was never disclosed, it was obvious that the final five that made the team were the ones with the least number of points. What I mean by that, if you won one of those matches, you got credited with one point, two for second and so on. And at the end of the week, the five people with the lowest number of points would be the team. Today, they don't do it like that. It's a better way now. Because everybody in those days, Stan Smith, was fishing to beat the guy on the next peg to them. So there wasn't really that much learning. Whereas now, you two fish bloodworm, you two fish this way, the, and find as many different methods that they could fish to find out what the best, what the key method was for the day. And I think that's probably why England's success has been as lavish as what it's been in the last sort of decade. They are the number one team in the world, without doubt. I appreciate that this isn't a direct comparison, but when international sea angling teams are selected for big championships, all the bait is laid on to ensure that no team has any sort of an advantage. How is bait for course fishing internationals governed, and are there any restrictions on what you can use? The England team organise itself, and they have a, they'll have a chap there with a van that'll go over uh, with the bait. If it's a bloodworm venue, he'll be arriving there with fresh bloodworm, casters, it's all sorted and all organised by the team squad plus helpers. When the draw is actually made, presumably there will be information already available regarding pegs to help teams in terms of what might be the best approach. What happens at that point in terms of team discussion? In my day, it was just get on with it, just get to your peg and get on with it. Like when I won the World Championship in Poland on the slider. I don't think there was another team member fishing a slider. You see, when we went for a week's practice on this canal, even though it was deep, we fished with wagglers with little shots down the line. And we caught roach, and we caught rud, and we caught bleak, and we caught small fish, generally. And we were winning our own little individual match with sort of, in three hours, with sort of three, four pound of small fish. And Stan Smith had already decided, on the last day, decided what the team was. So we had to go into town to register the team in the main office. And he left Johnny Wilkinson as first reserve, well, as reserve. 
And it was on that day when Stan Smith was filing the team that John Wilkinson decided to put a big float on with some lead down, not the way you'd fish to catch three or four pounds of rope, and started catching bream and carp. And I couldn't see it because he was round the corner, but Kevin Ashes was the next peg. And he come round and he said, Wilkie's just put a big float on, three treble A bulk down, balling in ground bait and started to catch bream. I've just had a go at it and I'm catching bream now. I said, it sounds perfect for my slider. He says, yeah, it does. So I put the slider, this is the day before, and I started catching bream on the slider. When Stan Smith came back, he put Terry Payne in from Sheffield who failed to catch on the day. Right, and poor old John Wilkinson, who'd found the method, was reserve. And all in, I put six balls across into the deep water, bottom of the shelf across, and chucked out with a slide and ended up with three ropes on my first three casts, followed then by a bream and another bream and a carp and another bream. I ended up with a record weight for the event. One section. And that method was only found by one of the team members the previous day after a week's practice. So that's how it used to work. Today, it's a little bit more sophisticated. I think Mark Downs and his gang, they do a grand job. They work well. And of course, with the advent now of walkie-talkies and things like that, they know the result <laughs> halfway through the match you see the way the match is going and people can alter tactics now they geared up to change if necessary I mean they are top flight anglers and they've got lots of tattle all there prepared behind them most of it never to be used but at least if the word comes through that this the method has changed this is what's happening a team is starting to run away with it by doing A, B, C. They'll have the gear to follow suit. Did you not get any information at all coming through? Not even, say, by runners working for the team? Well, if there's 47 teams of five, that's 547s five is 235. Poor old Stan Smith on his own and probably a couple of helpers that weren't really clued up. He'd got an awful lot of walkie to do, to do several trips in three hours, and no walkie-talkies in them days. So, if you saw him twice, you was fortunate in the three-hour duration of the match. I was in A section, I saw him after the first 15 minutes, and I didn't see him until the match finished. And I turned around and said to him, have I won my section, Stan? He said, won your section? He said, you'll be the new world champion. I said, never. He said, I'm telling you, lads. He's going to tell you, Stan Smith. And he was right, of course. And how did the team fare? We were second. We got silver medal. Poor old Terry Payne from Sheffield. He failed to catch. And it was then, in 1975, in that World Championship, that we realised how vital a pole would have been. And from that day on, we started to have a look at poles. Probably spearheaded with Kevin, with Kevin Ashurst. In fact, I'd go as far as to say that if that if Terry Payne would have had a pole, because the water was full of bleak and he could have fished a little light rig shallow, 
And if he'd have caught a fish, a stickleback would have done, we'd have had gold medal. We just needed him to catch a fish. But from poles not being used in the UK, by 1977, so that's two years on, you go watch any 100, 200 peg match on the canals in the northwest of England, and you'd be very lucky to see a rod and reel being used. That's how popular the poles become, because people realise how easy it is to present light tattle under the far bank of the canal, and it was definitely the way forward, and has been, and still is. And that's why pole fishing is so popular now. I would also say, that stemming from that World Championships, whilst the England team realised they had to get up to date with pole fishing, also the Europeans, the Continentals if you like, also realised little Englishmen had won by fishing a sliding float at distance. They needed to prone up their ideas on rod and reel fishing. So there's a great swap around of tackle on that particular world, well, in all world champions, but certainly that year, realisation for the British team, the England team, that poles had to be added to their armoury, and also the Continentals, rods and reels had to, had to be added to their armoury. Then ten years later, you added the European crown. Yeah, that was uh, in Portugal, and that was on the score. Oh, what a start to that match. It was 22 foot deep, so my, my slider came in, into the four again. And by this time, Dick Clegg was the manager. And Dick Clegg appeared at my peg about 10 minutes after the start. And I already had hooked a carp, and it went out of my swim. I put the rod end under the water to try and camouflage it. But it tangled with the Italian's pole float on the next peg on the right. And of course the steward was going mad and it came off, it came untangled and I landed it. And it was obvious that the fish had gone out to the swim. And Cleggy was there, so what do I do with it? He says, put it in your net. Well I put this carp in the net, the first fish, a carp about four pound I guess. And there was a right royal row going on. And I looked at him, at Cleggy, he said, pull it back. And I put it back, I looked at you again, he's got his head in his hands. Right. I cast out this waggler, pouch full of maggots out there, the float buried, and I had one. And I landed that. And then I carried on just catching carp and did enough to win. But yeah, I had to throw the first one away. <laughs> How good did that feel compared to the world title? Well, it is again, I mean, you're there representing your country and to do the best you possibly can, i.e. a win, then you still have the same buzz. Yeah, from, from winning the European Championship. Yeah, of course you do. Every match you fish, whether it's a club match or an open match or a World Championship or a European Championship, you're there to win. It's, and you do get a buzz of winning amongst a load of foreign friends, if you like. I mean, you've got to realise, at both World Championship and at European Championship, you're not just fishing against anybody, you're fishing against the best anglers in the world. You know, I'll go back to 75 again. I obviously caught the first fish in that World Championship. And how I know is as I caught that fish, as I landed that fish, there was a cheer. And about two minutes later, there was another cheer down the canal somewhere. And another cheer. And every fish was cheered. So I do know that I caught 
the first fish. Every time I caught a fish that much, then I got cheered on and cheered on. And because I was catching the most, then the, the crowd got thicker and thicker in front of me. But when you match fishing and you're catching fish at a certain rate, you get what I call the winning feeling. You know you're catching fish to such a rate that it's going to be hard for anybody to beat you. Now, that happens all the time in the UK. That World Championship, I was catching very well, but I never got that feeling because I had to add to the formula I'm fishing against the best in the world. If I'm catching them at this rate, there'll be some other bugger that's catching them at a similar rate. But there wasn't at the end of the day. Do you not feel that whilst the European title isn't quite so prestigious as the world title, that having won both establishes your big match performance consistency, therefore giving the European title a bit more value as part of a pair than it would have had in isolation? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Especially winning on the slider. I mean, the Italians, they said, Ian Eats is the best sliding float fisherman in the world. That was an endorsement of those two big matches. According to the stats I have, 1988 was the last time you represented England on the international scene. Was that a conscious decision? Well, it came out of the blue. An old friend of mine, the guy who invented the ASI seat box, Norman Butler. Norman Butler used to supply the England team. He was always at Dick Clegg's office. And he used to supply the England team with boxes and one another. He was a very good friend of mine as well, Norman. And he said, uh, I'll find out what happened, why you got axed from the team, because I'd done nothing wrong. Anyway, it turns out that on the River Moselle, once again in Portugal, but this time a world championship, I think I was second in my section fishing a waggler down the middle of the river, catching small barbel. And Trabuco had a too late fish, too big a barbel, and bit me to the section. And the team, the England team, was sponsored by Steads, Steadfast, who was part of the DAM family. And both the managing director and the sales director from DAM had gone to watch the match with a particular interest in me, because I was the boy that was endorsing their gear. At the end of the match, I was giving all sorts of items of tackle away. And there was about 20 or 30 kids, Portuguese kids, all around me. And Chris Aylett, the managing director of DAM, recognised that there was something there for the DAM brochure, me, my sort of way of being able to get on with kids. He got the sales director to go take a photograph. And the sales director took the hat, my steadfast hat off, and put a DAM cap on while I had a photograph with these kids. Somebody else took a photograph, and a man called Malcolm Burdett from Barnsley, his job for the NFA was to source sponsorship, of which I found out he used to get 15%. Apparently it was him that went into Cleggie's office and through this photograph of me with a DAM hat on. That man must never fish for England again. And Norman Butler got that out of 
the click. That's what it was all about. So it was politics? It was politics, yeah. What happened after that? Well, the next, the next after that, right, uh, the World Championships were in Ireland. And my record was second to none in Ireland. And um, the Home International was also hosted that year by Ireland. So they decided to have the Home International on the same venue as the World Championship venue on the River Erne. But the lower end of the river where it's very deep. Once again the slider plays a part again. And I got picked for the Home International team. And Ivan Marks phoned me because he wasn't, he didn't get picked. Ivan phoned up, he said, uh, are you going to go to Northern Ireland? Are you going to fish the Home International? I said, yeah. He said, I'll tell you something now, Ian. He was a wise old, wise old bird was Ivan Marks. He said, I'll tell you now. If you win on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, and if you win the Home International on Saturday, you'll still not make the team for the World Championship. Well, don't you reckon? No, he said. You're being used because of your prowess with the slider. I won Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and I won my section in the Home International. And Dick Clegg came to me. I was just packing my gear up. Well, Ian, well done, he said. He said, I've got to... Uh, Say you're possibly the best sliding float fisherman in the world. But I've decided to keep the team the same as last year. I said, you're the boss, Dick. Be on your shoulders. And I never did kick up a fuss, because that's not my nature. I didn't kick up a fuss, but Toasty, as we call him, Norman Butler, he said, I'll find out. And it took about three or four years but he actually found out what the true story was. Well, yeah, how was that for the archives? <laughs> I take it that that's when you started getting involved in the road shows. Getting sacked, getting left out of the England team, helped me with my business. Because when you are representing your country at that level, like we've said earlier, it does take all your time, all your home time and everything. And it also disallows you to follow a work pattern that earns you money. <laughs> now I'll be able to concentrate, and I did that with roadshows and did very nicely, thank you very much. But I couldn't have done those roadshows and fish for England, and so the timing was spot on. After 12, 13 years with the England team, I'd earned a name, earned a reputation. I was involved with the tackle trade, to start to do a series of road shows, and then uh, it just all followed suit. Followed eventually by the Ian Heaps Fishering School of Angling, where we are today. Well, I learned a love for imparting skills through the road shows, so I then started to do the uh, Ian Heaps School of, of Angling. And I realised then, whilst I was using other people's guest houses uh, and other people's venues, I could only have my own guest house and lakes on site, I could do the whole thing in one package. Hence, I bought Holland Farm and developed it into what it is here today. Can you tell us a little bit more about the setup and what's on offer? Well, when I first bought it, it was just a field. 
and uh, decided to build three lakes. And the reason for that was, I took a leaf out of the Northern Ireland Festival that I fished, the Benson Edges, which is a three-day event. And people came from all over the UK to fish that event. And the Northern Ireland Tourist Board looked after them lavishly. They all went back home with lit torches to say how wonderful it was. And that fire spread nationwide in a matter of weeks. And consequently, everybody wanted to go to Northern Ireland to enjoy the fantastic fishing that was there. And I thought, if I have three lakes here, I'll be able to have a three-day festival. I'll invite friends and people from all over and copy that same idea. And, that's exactly, and we still do these festivals today. And it did work. It did get the place on the map very, very quickly. What about the individual lakes themselves and your stocking policy? Well, when I set out to make it, I decided I wanted to make the best fishery. Not just in fish catching terms, but aesthetically well. I spent thousands and thousands of pounds on flowering shrubs and plants and lilies and everything and I've set out to make it the best fishery in the UK and people say we're there, they don't know anywhere else like it. They come from far and wide and they all say we don't know anywhere like it. So in the first lake it's mainly carp, there's golden tench, there's ordinary tench, there's a few crucians, there's the odd chub. In the next lake, because they're all gravity fed, there's a stream that runs around our border. I mean, I had to have a stream. It was one of the things which was a must have in place. Whichever plot of land I was going to buy. And that flows into the first lake, the highest lake. Gravity fed then into the next lake, which is the Tension Crucian. Well, it's not just Tension Crucian. It's Tension Crucian Roach Bream. Beautiful Crucian to £3 plus. Bream to sort of 5 £6. And it's getting better every year if that's possible. I mean, uh, I fished a match on there a couple of weeks ago, £107 I had of crucians and just a splattering of bream amongst them. Then the next lake, the deepest lake, that competes with the top lake for carp. But there's also an enormous head of roach in there and some good quality roach. The original fish I put in was 100 roach. They were all over the pound mark. Those fish occasionally show now. I think they must be getting fewer in numbers now as they probably have reached their old age. And, but uh, we catch the odd £2 plus roach, which I think are possibly those initial roach. But you could catch £30 of roach in a match like batting your cap. There's a lot of roach there. When you fish for carp, you've got to fish a bait that's big enough that the roach won't interfere with. Otherwise, we played with the roach. Uh, there's a few bream in there, yeah. quite a good head of crucians in there as well. But all in all, all three lakes are all capable of £100, like regular. And in addition to all that, you have the tackle shop, accommodation, and your son Scott working on site. Is he ever going to make it big on the match angling scene? He doesn't fish enough, but when he does, he does very, very well. Like he fished the festival, 
last year on the festival, he was, after day two, he was winning, winning the festival. And we talked about luck earlier, and he drew a peg. Looked. Peg 13, would you believe, unlucky for somebody. I've seen it, this peg 13 kick people in the teeth before. It can also win, by the way, depending on which way the wind's blowing. He drew peg 13, and it was an ill wind, and he flumped out. But this year, he won, I think he won about 400 quid, but he didn't win the festival. But he's, he's always there about. He just doesn't do enough. If he did spend more time on the bank fishing, then he would, he would be very, very good. Looking back now over everything we've talked about so far, if you had to pick out just one highlight, what would that be and why? The World Championship takes some beating. But I went to Northern Ireland to fish the Benson Edges and I'd never fished in Ireland before, never fished the River Earn, never seen the River Earn. And on day one I didn't do that well. And uh, one chap won the match, I think there was about 300 people in the match, Billy Knott won it from Cornwall. And he had a £125 a roach. I asked him how he caught them and he told me. And I went to practice actually because the match was every other day. And I emptied it with roach. And I'm designed and made a float on the bank. And uh, God help me if I lost it because I'd only got the one. But I sat down the next day and I weighed in a £137 of roach and won day two of the Benson Edges Festival. On the final day, on the third and final day, there was two young lads from Belfast who sat with me on the second day. Can we sit with you again, Mr. Heap? Certainly you can. And they used to mark every fish with a one and another stroke and another stroke, four strokes, then one across for five. And they told me at the end of the third day I'd caught 723 roach for a staggering weight of 166 pounds in 11 and a half ounces. And that broke the world five hour match record. I mean, it didn't stand a chance these days because they catch 300 pound a car regular. But for Roach, it broke the world five-air match record. And it helped to put Northern Ireland well and truly on the map. Because the tourists were actually filmed, those fish being caught. And I ended up with a job as angling consultant for the board where I used to hawk this film round all the different clubs, showing the film and giving them a talk. And that's what started the Enix Roadshows. Five years I did that for, for the tourist board. At the end of five years, from having zero tour operators, they had 20 people putting bums in beds, as the expression goes. And they said, thanks very much, Ian, job done. And that was the end of my road shows. Oh, no, it wasn't. Because I used to get phone calls. Can you come and do another show? But I'm not with the tourist board now. But can you come and do a show? And I said, yeah, we'll charge on the door, £3 a head. Yeah, great. So my road shows carried on, and I did very nicely, thank you very much. And uh, all those proceeds helped to buy Holden Farm, and do all the work I've done. Fifteen months digging we were here, when I designed all these lakes. Fifteen months of excavations it took to, to do it. But it's all done, it's all well matured now. It's close on twenty years since I've been here. And uh, it looks like they've been there forever, those lakes. Who was the best match angler that you ever fished against? 
that's going to be Kevin Ashurst. Kevin Ashurst, inspired by his father, Benny, who was also a very good angling brain. But Kevin was so quick in sussing the method of the day. And a very hard man to beat. What then, in your opinion, separates champions from the also-rans? The will to win. Dedication and the will to win. And dedication means preparation of tackle, having the finest baked. Like I said, I think earlier, I used to always do my own casters. I wouldn't rely on shop-bought casters. I don't know how long they'd had them in bags. I wanted my bait fresh. I didn't want to be able to give myself an excuse. I think my bait was a bit off. My bait was always the best bait on the bank. Therefore, my confidence was at a high. And I think confidence also breeds success. What about your main competitors at the time? Who were they? And what were they like as anglers and people? I mean, I used to fish many, many venues. So I would come across different people who were sort of high on the list on that particular venue. So the list is endless, really, of the people who used to compete against. What about the big names, then? Say, for example, Ivan Marks. Well, Ivan Marks was, I mean, he was in a, an ilk of his own. I mean, uh, if there was a language where he could speak to fish, then he knew it. Another natural talent. Yeah. A very, very good angler. And if I hadn't have mentioned Kevin as being the best angler, I could have mentioned Ivan as being the best angler. But Kevin just edges Ivan out in my book. Just out of curiosity, where in the country does Ivan Marks come from? Leicester. Ah, because my next question was going to be, why do you think that the northwest of England breeds so many top course match anglers? It's easy. I used to fish on the Peak Forest Canal every night on the bread punch. Fishing the bread punch is the quickest way to learn. Anybody who serves their apprenticeship at bread punch fishing, the little and often feeding of a little tiny cloud of uh, bread ground bait, the delicate presentation, just quarter of an inch off the bottom with your hook. And I used to say, why is that important to my father? He said, well, on a dour winter's morning afternoon you can imagine that fish with its belly on the bottom you put in that bait right in its mouth and it was them sort of things shotting patterns the importance of the telltale shot that's the shot nearest the hook how far away or how close because it is the movement of that shot that registers the bite so you can't have the telltale shot too far away right? otherwise they'd have the bread off the hook without you seeing the bite and it was getting all those things right. And I used to fish there every night. And I used to catch a hundred fish every night. I used to put a swan shot in a baked tin lid every time I caught ten. And when there was ten swan shots there, it would always be roughly the same time of night. I used to pack up and be on the bus back home. And I remember my father saying, if you can catch fish here in the northwest of England, the semi-polluted northwest, industrial northwest of England, you can go anywhere in the world and catch. And those words stuck in my mind. And in fact, even the 
climate as you go further south London and areas you had a warmer climate the fishing was much much better and when northwest anglers went down there it was paradise they put the same effort into catching those hard northwest fish only to find they were reaping rich rewards they were catching fish so much easier and therefore the hard semi-polluted industrial north that's why I think that has bred uh, the ilk of angler that has come out of the northwest. Do you know of any people who perhaps should have made world champion but for whatever reason never actually did? I don't know because since I've been down here for 20 years and it's not a selfish attitude this but I read the results in the paper of how the England team is doing which is very very good but I'm not as involved well not involved at all so consequently over the last 20 years a lot of it has skipped right over my head so you can't talk about something that you know little about what about during your time on the team oh yeah <laughs> we fished in Bulgaria on this big lake on the dam wall of a big lake and there was five sections, there was four sections on the dam wall and one section on a grass field. When we went to practice, they wouldn't let us anywhere near there, we had to practice at the other end of the lake, which was totally different. And once again, the slider, I was catching the most fishing at distance with the slider. So that's how we were going to fish it, as a team. Where Kevin was, it was bleak. When I say bleak, there's a load of fish there, but they were bleak. And the Italians set off one after the other. Kevin had to change. And he changed and he caught bleak that fast he won his section. And this was a day and age where the first three in each section qualified for a fish off for the individual. I can remember chucking my slider out. I put about six balls of ground bait at about 25 yards in about 18 foot of water and I've chucked out and my float wouldn't settle because a fish was intercepting my double maggot hook mate and these were little chub about three or four ounce and every time the float hit the water it wouldn't settle I had a fish after fish after fish and I thought this place is solid and I only got three rods made up all with slidey floats on in the end, I ended up fishing just a rod length out and got time to change the float because every time I went in I was catching a fish. And by now I'm feeding handfuls of maggots and you could see the shoals of chub coming in. Well, I finished fourth in my section, which I was quite annoyed at because I've missed the chance to qualify because I know exactly how he wanted fishing and just like we fished in Ireland with a pole, short pole, bulk shot down speed fishing, in, out, feed, in, out, feed, in, out, feed I mean when I had that 720 fish, 723 fish in Ireland I put a ball of ground bait in every cast and if I've missed 10% that's 800 balls of ground bait I've put in in the 5 hours it needed that sort of approach. Kevin drew near enough 
where I'd been. And he says, what do you reckon, Ian? I said, I'll tell you what. I went through his float box and he had a little tiny balsa float about four inches long, about as thick as a fag. I said, I'll take about three triple A. I said, that's the what you want on. Three treble A, about 18 inches from your hook and just one dropper. Now you've got to remember that Kevin had done very well with bleak. So his first thought was to fish for these bleak, very shallow. Which was solid, you could see the bleak swimming around. The water was quite clear. I said, Kevin, by all means, catch your bleak. I said, but keep feeding the maggots heavy. I said, the minute you see these chub appear, switch to that heavy Irish type rig. Now the hooter went to start, not to actually start fishing, you get a five minute pre-baiting. So in this five minutes pre-baiting he's throwing a handful of maggots in, followed by another. And I was sat with Stan Smith behind him, and he looked over his shoulder and did Kevin. He said, I can see them chubs here now. So I thought he'll go for them right away. The match started, what did he pick up? The bloody bleak. I can understand it's just one section on this bleak rig. But he's catching these bleak, and occasionally when the bleak didn't take it and his bait fell deeper, he'd catch on his little chub. I said, so get on that heavier rig. And he did. He picked it up and he went in. He was catching chub, four ounce apiece, as fast as what he was catching these half ounce bleak. One bear that he was flying. It was who was going to be second. He was catching at such a rate. I was counting, there was an Italian next but one to him. And they can catch bleak. Kevin was catching these chub faster than what the Italian was catching bleak. And you imagine, bleaker on the surface, these chub are down. He was come up with that three treble A down. And then a, an awful thing happened. He got two of these floats in his box. But he struck it to fish. And it came unconnected at the tip of his pole. He lost his float, the whole thing. With about 20 minutes to go. It would have taken him maximum two minutes to have put another line on, that float and a hook, three treble A, and he'd be back in business. But no, he picked the bleak rod up again. Realising how quick these chub were coming, he put a big shot on that sunk his, his bleak float, but he could see it under the water, and he still carried on catching chub, but nothing like he was catching them before. And... He didn't even come second, he was third. Ivan was second. Ivan had sorted it himself and he was catching like Kevin should have started and should have carried on. And he was very, very unfortunate. Very unfortunate not to, uh, not to have won that match. Bob Nudd came along into the ranks and Bob Nudd didn't start fishing until late in life. But I used to help Bob Nudd and Kevin, and we used to stop in the same chalet in Ireland. And a lot of information got passed, and it helped Bob Nudd, but I could see Bob Nudd was a, uh, a star of the future. In fact, it was me who put Bob Nudd's name forward to Stan Smith. Stan had a look at him, and then he fished for umpteen years after. But Bob Nudd, his job, he was in time and motion. And he used that, those same principles in his fishing. And after Kevin and myself had imparted knowledge for Bob Nudd, he beat Kevin into second place in the World Championship twice.
because he was more organised. Kevin and me the, the, the same. Ivan was the same. A bit rough and ready. Nuddy was immaculate. Organisation to a T. Had the knowledge from the man he beat into second place twice. Tell you what Kevin was like. He shot at a floater at once and there was too much floats to cut. Other people would have put another shot on. He didn't. He bit half inch off the top of this float. <laughs> that sort of sums him up. Absolutely first class angling brain. And in my book, the best angler this country's ever produced. And given the chance, with all the hard work and obvious dedication involved, would you want to do it all again? Without doubt. Without a shadow of a doubt. I've got no regrets at all. I would do it all again. I wouldn't change anything. My thanks then to Ian Heaps. It's been an honour and a pleasure to talk to you. <laughs>